Hey, listen, that's a great song. And, and, and I'm going to say something. Please don't uh, misunderstand when I say this. Do we really want to see his glory? We, we say that. We say, yes, Lord, show us your glory. Remember in the Old Testament, Moses asked for that. And, and, and the Lord said, I'll, let you, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll let you see the backside because you can't handle it. Friends, we, we sing that song and we pray that prayer and we, we say, Lord, we want to see your glory. But I don't know if we really fully understand what it means when the Lord shows us his glory. That means he changes us forever. And, and, and yeah, we can say amen and we can be excited. But friends, that means it radically upsets our status quo. It means that we are, we are not to keep doing the same things that we were doing. And, and I'm afraid that uh, uh, as, we, as we look at the things that we do day in and day out, week in and week out as Christians... A lot of times, we still kind of play the game. We re, and, and please, understand, you know my heart. We raise our hands and we close our eyes and we sing those songs. But friends, I want to tell you, we can't handle His glory. It's going to take a radical reconfiguration of our hearts in order for us to understand and know even what He means. By His glory. See, the glory of God is the sum total of all of His attributes. And friends, I'm telling you, He's infinite and His attributes go on for eternity. We can't handle His glory. I just want us to get a little bit of context as we think about that. As we sing songs, and friends, we have an incredible worship team that leads us in worship and leads us to the throne of grace every week. So please don't hear me saying that I, I'm not throwing them under the bus. They lead us to the throne of grace. They, they, they present these things to us every week to say, show us your glory. But for us, it, it's up to us to say, oh, we really don't want to see it. I don't know if we're really ready for that. And so that's why we're here today as we open up God's Word. I want us to understand and know what it means to see God's glory. What does it mean to, to ask God to show us His glory? Well, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2. We've been in this series the last few weeks called Seven. It's the seven churches of Revelation, and, and it's very, uh, very appropriate that that song was the last song that kind of set up the message, and because uh, as you're turning there, let me tell you a story. When I, was, when I first started in ministry, it was 1990. Some of y'all weren't even born, but in 1990, I started in ministry, and, and one of the first books that I ever read, it came out in 1990. It was by a guy named George Barna. George Barna was a, a futurist. He was a, a church, uh, uh, he, he looked at church trends and he, he um, would, uh, would kind of give an idea about where the church was headed. And, and he wrote this book in 1990 that came out. It was called The Frog in the Kettle. That's an odd name for a book, but understand what that, what that book was all about. It, it was about a church... <clears throat> 
how the church could end up like a frog in the kettle. Now, a frog in the kettle was a, an old psychological experiment that they would use uh, and where they would take a frog, a live frog, and take boiling water and they would throw the frog in a, boiling, uh, in a pot of boiling water. And you know what would happen? The frog would jump out. But if you take that same frog and you put it in a, a pan of a, a pot of, of lukewarm water or room temperature water and then raise the temperature ever so slightly, ever, uh, ever, just a few degrees, uh, every few minutes, the frog would stay there until he was cooked. And so we, the church, George Barna wrote, we the church are the frog in the kettle. And, and we, we gather together and we sing songs and we ask God to show us His glory, but we're not paying attention to what's going on around us. We're not, show, we're not sure of the things that are happening around us because we have so much sin and so much compromise and so much tolerance that we can't see the things that are going on around us that are raising the temperature and eventually we are cooked. Eventually we lose our opportunity to influence the... Uh, the culture that we're in. And, and that's where we are today. This subtle shift in our focus in, in the church, in the mission of the church, in the values, in the decisions, and the behaviors has all created this culture of chaos. Friends, we're living in a culture of chaos, aren't we? Just watch the news. Just pay attention to what's going on. And, and Christians are compromising and tolerating sin like never before. You know, if you look at Christians or people who profess to be Christians, you look at their behavior and look at people's behavior that don't profess to be Christians, you know what? You see the same things. And we're slowly turning up the heat and we're not even aware that we're losing the spiritual battles around us because we're too busy doing the same things that we've always done, or we've done what's right in our own eyes. And as we look at Revelation chapter 2, in the seven churches uh, that John the Apostle uh, is, is writing to, Jesus is writing to them, he's using John uh, to, to, write to these, uh, letter, write to these churches, Jesus has a strong message to these churches. And, and today, he's writing a message to the church at Pergamum. Now, Pergamum was a great city. It was an educational city. It was, a, it was a, a center of instruction, and it had one of the most famous libraries of the day. They had over 200,000 scrolls, parchment scrolls, that they had available to them. So it was a well-educated, very cultural city. And, <clears throat> and John writes this letter from Jesus to a, a message to the church at Pergamum. Read with me, look along uh, with me at uh, chapter 2, verse 12. It says this, Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. Let me stop right there. Jesus talks about himself being a double-edged sword. He is the word. Do you remember, for those of you Bible scholars, you remember in Hebrews, it talks about the word of God is living and active in what? Sharper than any two-edged sword. That, that's talking about Jesus himself is the two-edged sword. He is talking about right here, he said, the authority that I have, I put it behind me. This is the authority that I have. And so in, in biblical times, a sword represented authority. And so Jesus is saying, there's a two-edged sword. I'm, I'm speaking to you with all the authority backed up in this. And so he says, 
He says, to the, to the church in Pergamum, I know where you live. Isn't that kind of creepy? I know where you live. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet, you are holding on to my name and didn't deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some, uh, you have some there who are holding on to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I'll come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna. And also give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the authority in your word. And I pray, Father, that you would allow your word to land on the hearts and lives of everyone that's in this room, everyone who hears this on Facebook Live, everyone who listens to this podcast later on. Father, I pray that your word would go forth in power, and I pray that it would impact our lives because, Father, we are just like Pergamum. Sometimes we are, we are sacrificing uh, truth, and we, are, uh, and we are compromising truth. And, Father, I pray that uh, our church, I pray that Lehites Baptist Church, we would be a church that would stand strong, that would stand firm, and we would be unrelenting in the truth. And Father, we trust that you will do a great work here. And Father, I pray that if there's someone here who needs to trust you as their Savior, who needs to come back into a relationship with you because they've been drifting, they've been compromising for so long, I pray that today would be the day that they would do that. That we just give you the honor and the glory because you are worthy. You are worthy of all of our praise. All of our honor. And Father, we are thankful for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the ch Jesus commended the church at Pergamum. He started off by commending them because they were a devoted church. He said, you know, hey, you guys are holding on to my name. You didn't deny my, uh, your faith in me. You're, you're a pretty solid church. You love me with all your heart. And he tells them he knows that they're overcomers because they're living on the devil's doorstep. He said, this is a big deal because you're following me even though you're living in a difficult place. The, the place where Satan is in charge. They lived where Satan's throne was. Now, contrary to popular belief, Satan's throne is not in hell. Satan is not in charge of hell. In fact, <coughs> we think that uh, we see Satan as uh, uh, a man in a... Uh, in a red jumpsuit with pitchfork and, and horns, that is not him at all. And he is sitting on a throne in hell. Satan is not in charge of hell. Satan is going to be a victim in hell just like everyone else who rejects Jesus Christ. And, and so he's the prince of the power of the air. He is the prince of this world. And so he has set up shop in Pergamum right where this church was. And so Jesus is saying they stay strong even in the midst of evil. 
And Jesus was well aware of what they were going through. He was well aware of, of the challenges that they were under. And uh, you may say, you know, I, I don't want to live in Satan's hometown. I don't want to hang out where Satan is. I, I, wanna, I would rather live in a place that's surrounded by nice, godly people. I want to be in a place that, where, where everybody holds hands and sings kumbaya. Amen. Isn't that a great place to live? Well, I think naturally we would want to go there, but I love what the, uh, the late uh, 1800s pastor, uh, C.T. Studd, I love the name, I love his name, Pastor Studd. C.T. Studd it was a pastor in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He said this, he said, Some people want to live within the sound of church and chapel bell. Me, I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Friends, that's, that's strong. He said, I, I want to live on the devil's doorstep because that's where the action is. See, that's who the church of Pergamum was. They were devoted. They were faithful to his word. They had a strong faith. They didn't deny him. And Jesus acknowledged that. But just like most all the other churches in, in Revelation, Jesus addressed a critique. Look at verse 14. He said, but I have a few things against you. Jesus said, I know you're faithful. I know, I know you're, you're living right there on the devil's doorstep and you, you've not denied my name, but I have something against you. There's something going on here. Jesus criticized the church for its compromise. He's saying, you hold to the teaching, you tolerate the teaching of Balaam. Now, if you know the story of the Old Testament and Balaam in, in, in Numbers chapter 22 and 23, you may remember Balaam was the man, if you remember your Old Testament, who had a talking donkey. Y'all remember that story? The reason his donkey talked was because Balaam was a prophet who spoke for God and he took a bribe from Balak, the king, who wanted to curse the Israelites. And so Balaam took the bribe and he was going to... <clears throat> he was going to, to curse the Israelites, but he never could curse the Israelites. The reason the donkey talked was because Balaam was a compromiser. He compromised his calling as a prophet. And it, Jesus also said that they held to the teaching or they tolerated the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? We actually see them. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about them in, in the church at Ephesus. The Nicolaitans, we break down the name and we can understand what they believed and what they were all about. Nick, the Greek word there is Nike. Yes, just like the shoe. And so that word Nike means conqueror, conquest. And, and the next phrase there, laos, means people. So Nicolaitans means conqueror or dominator of the people. See, the, the people that followed the practice of the Nicolaitans, they wanted to set up a hierarchy in a church where only certain people could make decisions. Only priests could interpret Scripture. And, and certain people could have the final word. Not Jesus, not the Holy Spirit, but, but a group of people. So Jesus had a harsh rebuke for this church because they compromised through immorality and idolatry. Through idolatry and immorality. They compromised in those areas. It wasn't that they believed those teachings. Because Jesus told them he, he 
he commended them for hanging on to his beliefs. But he said, I have this against you because you tolerate these false beliefs. You, you tolerate these teachings in themselves. They didn't believe it. They just tolerated it being present. And Satan used it to wreak havoc in the church. Here's the truth I want you to understand. I want you to grab onto. What Satan can't affect from the outside, he attacks from the inside. You hear me? What Satan can't affect from the outside, he affects, or he, what Satan can't affect from the outside, he attacks from the inside. He attacks churches from the inside. Because we can be in here and, and he can come against us uh, on the outside and we can stand against him, right? But he wants to use Christians. He wants to use us to divide and conquer. Let me tell you, whatever you tolerate, Satan will exploit. And whatever he exploits can lead you to compromise and become ineffective for the kingdom. And so Jesus shines a light on this church. And I want him to shine a light right now on some of the things that you and I may tolerate. Now I know... I know that you say, I, I love Jesus with all my heart. I believe the Bible. I believe it's, it's God's word and I trust every word. And, and, and we say all these things and we believe all these things. But what are some things in our life that we just let hang around? What are some things in our life that, that we just tolerate? And I'm not going to give you a, a list of things. I'm not going to say you shouldn't do this and you should do this. That's the Holy Spirit's job. I'm not the Holy Spirit. You, you have to ask the Holy Spirit to, to give you what, what it is that you need to have as your non-negotiables. But I, I do want to I want you to ask yourself this. Does what I watch, does what I listen to, does what I think about, does who I hang around with, does it drive me constantly toward Jesus and being a better disciple? Or does it cause me to question? Does it cause me to pull away from Christ? If it doesn't cause you to become consistently more and more like Jesus, I would encourage you to do like popular comedian these days, John Chris says, you better check your heart. So Jesus, he, he criticized them. But then Jesus in verse 16, he offered a correction. Verse 16, he says this, so repent, repent. Jesus corrected the church by calling them to repent. Repentance simply means to change. We've talked about repentance for the last few weeks because that's Jesus' message to most all of these churches that he had a rebuke for. You know what the, you know what the correction is? Repent. You know what you should do? Repent. You don't have to... I don't have to give you a big long list of things. All you have to do is remember, repent. Repentance means to change. And, and the Greek word for repent means is metanoia, which means an inward change that leads to an outward action. See, a lot of times when we, in the church, we, we repent and we say, well, I'm, I've repented from that. That means we just changed our mind. We don't like that we got caught or we don't like that, uh, that it cost us something uh, and so we repent. But it didn't change our actions. It didn't cause us to put away some things. It didn't cost us or it didn't cause us to do some things that radically changed our lifestyle or it didn't 
cost us anything that uh, that we would were willing to give away. <clears throat> but the inward change leads to outward actions. That's what repentance is. So he gives the church at Pergamum this corrective measure. He says, repent. And all through the New Testament, you hear those words. Repent. And let me just say something, church. If you don't like those words, repent. You don't like that word, repent. Guess what? You better get used to it. Because it's said, it's used over and over and over again. And if you don't like to hear the word, repent, you better check your heart. Because you may be on the road to compromise. Now watch what Jesus does in verse 17. Verse 17 he says, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give him a white stone and on that stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus uh, Jesus comforts us. He comforts us with his promises. He says if you're an overcomer. If you're a conqueror. Of this tolerance. Of this slow erosion. That happens in this church. If you're, if you're an overcomer. And you put away the, the compromise. And the tolerance. That, that erodes the church's effectiveness. Caused by compromise. Here's three things you can expect. And these three things. Are really what we're applying the text. To our life today. This is the application to our life today. Three things you can expect. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Jesus says, hey, if you get right with me, I'll give you hidden manna. Now, hidden manna, or manna was just that food that God fed the Israelites when they were in the wilderness wandering around after they had left the captivity of Egypt. Every day they would go out and they would collect it. And they would get just enough. God would provide their needs. And God would give them enough to eat. Just enough what they would need to eat. And just like they trusted God to nourish them in the wilderness. We can trust God to nourish us spiritually. With the food that far outweighs the diet that we can provide ourselves. That far outweighs the physical, the mental, the emotional food maybe that you've been ingesting on your own. He'll, he'll, he'll nourish you through His Word. That's why one of the things that we, we talk about a lot here is we want you to get into God's Word until God's Word gets into you. We want you to read the, the Scriptures. We want you to engage in the Scriptures. If you have not uh, picked up one of the... Uh, New Testament Bible reading plans, the F260 New Testament plan. That's what we're doing as a church. We're reading through the New Testament this year. We want to encourage you to do that. Why? Because it's critical for us to grow in our, uh, in our Christian faith. We've got to get into God's Word until God's Word gets into us because that's the way that we're going to be spiritually nourished. <clears throat> he also will feed us through His indwelling Spirit. If you're a Christ follower, you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. And and when we allow the Holy Spirit to have complete control in us, He gives us everything that we need right when we need it, right where we need it, because He is the bread of life. He'll give us hidden manna if we overcome. But then He also says He'll give us a white stone. What is that all about? 
That's kind of weird. I mean, a white stone, is, it may seem odd to us today, but in Jesus' day, a white stone was a very, very critical uh, thing. People knew what white stones were for. One of the ways that white stones were used was in, uh, in, in judgment. A judge who would hear a case, he would have a white stone and a black stone. The black stone meant condemnation and guilt. The white stone meant innocence and acquittal. And, and what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to give you the white stone. That means you're acquitted of your sin. That means you're forgiven. You, you're, you're innocent because of the blood of the Lamb, because of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. That's one of the ways that uh, a white stone is, is used in the New Testament. Another way, another usage of a white stone is in a covenant relationship. See, there would be two friends that would, be, that would get together and they would be going uh, in separate directions. What they would do is they'd take the white stone and they would write a, kind of a code word, a code name that only the other one knew. And they would break the stone in half and they would give each other the other half. And so <clears throat> it's almost like those best friend necklaces, you know, the heart that's kind of split down there. You wear one half and the other one wears another half. That's probably the closest thing we have to, to, uh, to, to that sort of thing. But understand, the, uh, these people, they have half of the stone. And that signifies that if they ever need anything, they can go to the other person's estate to their home and say, I need something. And they basically have the run of the house. They can, they can have access to anything that the other one had. See, in Christ, we have access to everything he has. We have his grace. We have his forgiveness. We have his power. Because we've been acquitted because of the, the blood of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, we've been acquitted. We've been restored into a right relationship with Jesus. And no matter how, how far you've gone into idolatry, no matter how deeply you're, uh, in, in measure, how deeply you're embedded in immorality, the white stone points to our victory in Jesus Christ. And then on that stone, he has a new name. And this describes, for our application here, a sense of intimacy that we have with Christ. See, Jesus doesn't just want us to know him from a distance. He wants, to know, he wants us to know him intimately, personally. And, and that comes when we fully trust him. That's what comes when we overcome and we live a surrendered life in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's something especially intimate that's between you and the Lord. What if you had something just between you and Jesus? Would that be special? You know it would. If you had something directly between you and him, and he is giving you a new name. You know, in the Bible, when, when the Lord would change people's names, he would give them a new name because of a new destiny or a new purpose in their life, right? Right? In the Old Testament, he changed Abram's name to Abraham because he was going to be the father of many nations. He changed Jacob's name to Israel because he had a different destiny then. He, he changed Simon's name to Peter. He changed Saul's name to Paul. And you can trust that he will change your name. See, you don't have to be called idolater. You don't have to be called hypocrite. You don't have to be called immoral. You don't have to be called outcast. You don't have to be called compromiser. 
See, he's given you a new name because he's given you a new purpose and a new destiny. And your new name is chosen, righteous, holy, powerful, adopted, forgiven, and victorious. Friends, don't you want that for yourself? Don't you want that for your family? Don't you want that for your church? What about for those who are lost in our community and stuck in a culture that are boiling them alive and they don't even recognize it like a frog in a kettle? And here's how all this plays out in our life. Because this principle is always true for us. See, hear, hear this. You may say what you profess, but you live what you truly believe. So we can go around a lot and we can talk about what we profess. I love Jesus with all my heart. I want to see His glory. We say what we profess, but we live what we truly believe. If we want to see His glory... Some of us aren't ready to see His glory because we can't get into His presence in the state that we're currently in. Come on. So, we think we love Jesus so much, but there's a little bit of compromise. There's a little bit of tolerance. Somewhere in your life, in your schedule, in your mind, in your actions, there's a little bit of something that we're hanging on to But Jesus, we really want to see all this. And he says, no. And it's not that you don't believe God's word. It's not that you don't love Jesus with all your heart. It's just you're hanging on to something like the church at Pergamum was hanging on to. And you say, hey, I'll only linger for a little longer. I'll only go so far with my girlfriend or my boyfriend. I'll only do this once, or I only, only drink this, or I only smoke this, or I only watch this, or I only click this, or I only think this, just for a little while. Tolerance leads to compromise. You'll say what you profess, but you live what you truly believe. That's why we need to establish some non-negotiables. What do we truly believe? What is it we truly believe? We need some non-negotiables in our life that act as anchors that keep you from compromise, that keep you from tolerating sin. What are your non-negotiables? See, non-negotiables define what you're anchored to. I'll give you an example. For me, (coughs) several years ago, I I walked through and I walked through an exercise and I kind of named some non-negotiables in my life, in my in my family, in my ministry. One of the non-negotiables in my life is the Word of God. I will trust the Word of God as, as God's Word to me. It is, the, the, it is the, the textbook for my life. I will follow it. Another non-negotiable is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit in me, leading me to do exactly what Jesus Christ has called me to do. Being led by the Holy Spirit is a non-negotiable. The people of God is a non-negotiable. The people of God, His church, this is His body, this is His bride, and this is what He gave His life for. This is a non-negotiable. To say, oh, church isn't important. I can be a Christian and not hang out in church. Friends, you can't. You, you can You can't experience the full expression of what Jesus Christ died for unless 
you're willing to say, I will take the church and embrace it, warts and all. Because we're all kind of messed up, aren't we? The people of God is a non-negotiable. And then the purpose of God. The purpose of God. His calling on my life. His calling in my family. His calling me to ministry. These are non-negotiables in my life. I can't do what I want to do. Because I've surrendered my life to Jesus. And so my purpose, the purpose of God is a non-negotiable in my life. Now there are times when I wanted to say, I want to do something else, God. And he said, you go do something else, but you'll be disobedient. What are the non-negotiables in your life? I've got an assignment for you as we kind of close out here. I want you to make a list of your non-negotiables. Now, I don't want you to do that right now and just jot them down. I want you to think about them. I want you to wrestle with them. I want you to sit down at a table with your, with your spouse or with your family. And I want you to think about those things that anchor you to Christ. Is it TV? These are non-negotiables. i got to watch this TV show. I would hope not. You know, Alabama football is a non-negotiable. For some of you, maybe. Auburn football, non-negotiable. I'm ready to throw that out about every year, so you know it's not non-negotiable in my life. But listen, what are the non-negotiables? What are the things that anchor you to Christ? I want you to sit down. I want you to wrestle with them. And in light of Scripture, begin to write them out and live them out in your life. Print them out. Post them somewhere. You, you've seen these uh, these pieces of art that go on the wall that said in this family we believe this we believe in love we believe in laughter we believe you should lift the seat when you well we believe you should flush y'all seen those those aren't really non-negotiables they're cute little sayings but what if you wrote your non-negotiables and put them up for everyone to see we're not compromising on these We're not tolerating anything short of these. When you set them out, you post them, and you say, I'm going to live by these things. You get to experience the promise of Jesus when he says, I'm going to give you hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. And you can trust Jesus to do exactly what he said he would do. He'll nourish you. He will remind you that no matter where you've been, you are acquitted, you are forgiven. And you have access to everything He has in Christ. Because He's given you a new name. You can trust Jesus to do that. Now, every so often I'll ask a a couple of questions that I want you to wrestle with as we finish up with um, with this message. You see them there in your notes. What is God saying to you? When you read this text, when you hear this message, what is God saying to you? Are you listening? Are you paying attention? What is God saying to you? Because he wants to speak through his word. And then the second question is, what are you going to do about it? Well, nothing. It's a good message. I, uh... I'll write down some non-negotiables, but nothing really is going to change. What are you going to do about it? Friends, if we want to see God's glory, it starts right here. 
Some of you need to make a decision this morning. Some of you need to come to Christ. Surrender your life completely to Him. Some of you need to repent because you've, you've shown on the outside that you love Jesus, but on the inside you're, you're harboring some compromise. You're tolerating some sin. You're just letting it hang around. Friends, today is the day you get that right. So I'm going to pray. We're going to have a time of invitation, and I'm going to ask you to respond to the gospel. So let's pray together. We're going to stand, and you're going to respond. What's God saying to you, and what are you going to do about it?